Hola. What's that? <laughs> again, where you don't sound silly. Where I don't sound Spanish? Do it again. Hola. Bonjour. Ni hao. Tres en dobri. Ooh, that's a new one. Where's that one from? Ah, Polish. Go on. All right, Bab. Welcome to the Normal Not Normal podcast with me, Oliver Phelps. And me, James Phelps. So, as identical twins who grew up on the set of the Harry Potter films, you couldn't say that we had the most normal start to life. But recently, we've been thinking, what is normal anyway? And does it even exist? Well, today, to help us answer those tricky questions, we have film producer Paula Dupre-Pesman. Now, Paula was the producer on the first three Harry Potter movies. So, we grew up our career with Paula. Um, She's also helped produce the Potter films with Chris Columbus, also worked with him on many other films. But Paul has also produced such great films like Rent, Jingle All the Way, Mrs. Doubtfire, Home Alone 2, Lost in New York. Let's face it, one of the best Christmas movies of all time. Basically, if there was a hit movie in the 90s or the noughties, there's a good chance Paula was involved with it. Since then, Paula has gone on to producing eye-opening, award-winning documentaries such as The Cove, Chasing Ice, Quincy, Chasing Coral, and Keep On Keeping On. All these amazing films Paul has been around, involved in very, very much, basically pulling the strings. And it was during filming one of these films, Harry Potter, in fact, that she became inspired to found the charity There With Care, which supports families of children facing critical illness. It's an amazing charity, and I'm really excited to hear Paula talk about that. She's a huge inspiration, but then again, we have to say that because she used to be our boss. But honestly, she is an amazing individual, an amazing lady, and someone I think you guys are going to find absolutely incredible. So, well, well, hang on, hang on. Sorry, 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 sorry. Before we keep going. Yes. We've been told that there may be, a bit like yourself, James, when your dog jumps in in the background every now and then. The Paula's dog, Jimi Hendrix, is actually more than likely to be chatting away in the background uh, on calls like this. So if you do hear some barking, uh, it's it's coming from Jimi Hendrix in the background there. That's never, that is never a bad thing, having a dog I never I never actually thought I'd ever say that, that Jimi Hendrix is going to be talking in the background. But yeah, today's a day of first. Um, anyway, James, what have you been getting up to today or this week? <laughs> As I say, uh, walking my dog. That was a good thing. Uh, mm-hmm. And I've been doing more boxing. Boxing training, not sparring. Boxing training, not actually sparring. I, I'll be one of those anyway, but the face. Uh, so, yeah, that's been on. And, yeah, pretty much that. How about yourself? Yeah. yeah. Uh, played a bit of golf today. It's a bit nippy. But, yeah, played a bit of golf. Also, Moaning. as well. Well, no, no, no. I've got a question for you, right? You'll, you'll get this being a cyclist. Yeah. Why do cyclists, especially in the wintertime, wear black? Even in the middle of the day, why are you wearing black lycra instead of something as bright for all to see? Surely it should be made law. Surely it should be made law, right, that you don't wear dark colours and a reflector, mate, ain't going to help you. You need to have something bright, light, so you can be seen by anyone. Because let's face it, you're going to go through a red light anyway, like all cyclists seem to have the uh, world no, not given right, no, but they can break that impression. No, they don't. So why, no, they don't. why, why do people wear black and dark colours, all in one lycra, so they're trying to be almost like an envision of Batman. Why do they want to do that while they're riding a bike? When you, If anything, you want to be seen by as many people as you can. 
Why is that a thing in the cycling community? James Phelps. That is a very good question, Oliver, and one I can't completely answer. Uh, I have to be honest, most of my winter stuff is black, and that's simply because that's how exactly. it is. Exactly. Why is that? Why is it well, black? But what a stupid idea. It doesn't make any sense. Does black lycra keep you warmer? when it's cold so if you're riding in one degree centigrade the inside can be one color but the outside could be a different color i mean it's not going to hurt anything to put a massive fluorescent sticker on your back is it does the does the cyclist have a light on bright two bright lights one well the front, that's one the one thing the that's the thing well that's did, the thing in the day did, in the did, day cyclist, many people trouble. i saw more many than two people, i saw no, more than will, two today who didn't anyone. have a light on in the middle of the, this is in the middle of the day granted but winter time could get well, rain. isn't it? You should always put the light on. Well, exactly, exactly. Yeah, you know, you've got to be careful how this goes on. And with this also question, I'm going on a bit of a rant about cyclists now because, you know, don't get me wrong, I enjoy cycling, although I have got a spin bike in my house now because I don't like going outside in the cold. Uh, but yeah, you know, why, why do cyclists feel the need to go through red lights? That doesn't make any sense to me at all. You know, why do they do that? And why are they not lit up? You know, I saw this cyclist give someone verbals to nearly hit them because he was dressed like an absolute clown. You have people like you who, who try to tar uh, cyclists with every brush, which is wrong to do. That's like saying, why is every car driver a bad person for not going giving a cyclist a wide berth? Why, is, why does every dog walker not pick up after their dog? Most, the vast majority of people do pick up after their dog if they've gone to the toilet. Yes, but, yes, most, but, yes, but, most drivers go around a cyclist in a good way. Not every cyclist goes through a red light. So not every cycle should be tarred with the same brush. Okay, so I, I, I reject your wine for the sake of wine. Okay, okay. So let's go back to normal then. Why do most cyclists wear black in the winter? You're a proper Karen, aren't you? I'm not Karen. I'm not being fucked with it. I'm just you are. honestly You're one of those people. I don't know what's a Karen about this. I'm just know, stating ooh, ooh, that. I, the vast majority of people out who who need to be seen are seen. Maybe you should be more aware of when you're out driving or something. Hmm? Have you thought about that? No. I'm... Anyway, let's move off anyway, this because anyway. you're you're being silly. So, <laughs> well, anyway, back to today. Yes. Like we yes. said before, we have the amazing Paul Dupre Pesman. Paula, thank you very much for joining us this week. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing great. It's so nice to see you guys. We were wondering if you remember the first time we ever met because I know Oliver and I definitely do. I think it was the camera test. Was it camera test? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> you were the sweetest. You were both so sweet. And I was like, oh, this is going to be a dream. <laughs> really. I remember that that was the first time that we'd actually had hair dye put on our hair as a test. But it was like this spray effect. So you could kind of see, but it was it was nowhere near as bright as it ended up being in the actual filming. So, yeah, it was. Uh, I remember that day. But actually, that, that was actually our dad's birthday. That's how I remember it. It was the 31st of August. Oh, that's amazing. You know, I do remember, and I remember thinking this is so working, you know, like you were just the perfect people, the two perfect two actors for these roles. And the, when we saw you with the hair, the hairspray, we knew it was going to work. You know, I remember being really excited. It just felt so right. I'm so glad you remember that day. I don't think I've ever been as nervous as that day, to be honest with you. So it was definitely very memorable. I'm sure it was really scary. You know, we were adults and we, we were a lot older and it was scary for us too. Like we got to make the right choices. I'm sure Chris had a lot of pressure with the whole, you know, every kid, you know, when they would come to the sets and they would have these questions, they'd be like, oh, good. It looks just like I thought. And we're like, phew. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a tough audience. And Chris did a good job. How did you end up in film production? 
It's such a crazy story. So I lived in a small town in Northern California, a ski area town, and I was working at the office of the ski area. And and mind you, like I always had this love for movies and this escape, but I never thought that would be a possible possibility for me. I never even dreamed that I would work in film. But um, one day this TV actor, there was a show here years ago in the 60s called Wild Wild West. And the main actor who played James West lived up there. I didn't know who he was. And he came in to the ski resort to get his pass. And I didn't know why he wanted me to give him a pass. So we had a banter going back and forth. And finally, the woman who runs this ski resort told me, give him his pass. I'm like, okay, now you can have a pass because she says so. Um, so later he saw me and sent a hot chocolate over to me in the cafeteria and came over and said, did you really not know who I was? Did you never watch TV growing up? What's wrong with you? Do you have your head buried in the sand? And we became friends. So he and his wife used to come to the resort to ski and I would clock out at lunch and I'd go for ski runs with them. And I just really liked them. They were great people. And um, one day he said, you know, I'm going to be traveling and we're going to be looking for someone to come with us. I'm going to be going and doing some TV shows and living in Italy and traveling. And I'm looking for somebody to come with us as an assistant. And if you know anybody. And so I said, oh, OK, I'll think about that. And went home and thought, what about me? And so the next day I saw him and I said, you know, what about me? And he said, you'd be perfect. We'd love for you to do it. So um, that changed my life forever. I went and traveled with them, lived around the world, got to know a little bit about television production. I started seeing things that I would want to do and they were just amazing. And their company hired me a few years later and gave me my first job. That's amazing. Just crazy. Yeah. You not knowing someone led to everything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to knowing everybody. Yeah. I never thought of it that way, but you're right, right? And I know who he was and asked for an autograph, I'd still be working at the ski resort. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then fast forward from that, you've done many, many amazing films over the years. And obviously for someone that you've worked a lot with very closely is Chris Columbus, who casts in The Potters. And obviously it's... Is it quite, it's quite rare, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's quite rare, uh, especially in the film industry, for a producer and a director to work so closely on so many productions. How would you describe your relation, your working relationship with Chris? Because I know that Oliver and I pretty much only speak to each other because we have to. Mm, love right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I have the most respect for Chris Columbus. Like I, he is such an amazing person. You know, he's, uh, such a talented director, but I mean, as you guys know, being on the sets, like everybody loved Chris. He is just such a kind person. He sees everybody. He is so inclusive and thoughtful and funny. And um, he's just a dream to work for. When somebody has that kind of pressure that they have directing that uh, movies of that size of the, of the Harry Potter films, not a day was Chris not just a joy and just an amazing person to work with. And I think that's very rare. And he, he models that, you know, I just got so lucky. I got so lucky that that's where I landed. I think when we think about it now in like, obviously with our older heads on, I can't believe how relaxed, as you say, the first filming was, especially having all these kids coming involved who are, most of us had no experience at all. And just like every, like people like yourself and people like Chris, just answering questions. You know, what, what does that do? What does that person do? Why is that there? How long are we here for today? And then like, obviously kids being kids, 
messing about a bit and stuff like that. But just having the patience in mind that I don't even know how you'd, how you'd describe that. Like you wouldn't necessarily attribute that type of thing with something what's on a huge budget with a lot of eyes on it as well. But yet we were never made aware of any of that, that pressure. Yeah, that's the thing about Chris, right? He doesn't, if he has pressure, we never saw it. Either he's just an incredibly relaxed person or he's really good at not not sharing his stresses with others. But I mean, you think back, you know, kids just treasured these books. And if you messed that up on the first one, it would be forever. And he just did it right. He hired, a, you know, casted a lot of kids who had not acted before, but he just nurtured that and held that and got everyone to rise to their best. And he made it joyful for everyone along the way. There's nobody like him. No, no, definitely not. But let's talk, but let's talk about you, Paula, while we're here. So obviously, <laughs> like we're talking about Potter as well. For the, for the listeners who don't know, could you describe what an associate producer's job is? And, and more specifically, like in Potter, what was your, your role in that? Yeah, I, I always explain my role as um, behind the scenes and supporting the team. I was thinking about, before we did this call today, I was thinking about my first day walking into the studios, Leaveston, with Chris and Mark, and nobody had been there. We were the first people to see it. And it was just empty, you know, with like this horrible, felty green. It's an old factory, isn't it? Oh, God, it was an old factory. And, and nobody had been in that building. And it was just so run down. And just seeing the vision of what could we do with this space, you know, and how do we turn this into offices? And where do we put people? And how do we lay this space out? And how do we best use all the departments? And what is everyone's needs? It was just so fun to go from that to then, um, you know, finding storyboard artists that and getting examples of their work. So Chris could start working with the artists to board out the film. Um, everything, you know, uh, working with props. I would have things all the time on my desk that people needed Chris's feedback on, and, you know, and he'd walk by my desk and I'd stop him because we had a broom or a something, you know, on my desk, a <laughs> wand that he needed to get some feedback to. And I guess uh, for me, what my role was is just to be supportive down to, I remember talking to your folks about how many people were coming to the premiere and who did we need to have seated together? And <laughs> yeah. do you know, I had tickets for the <laughs> yeah. premiere all over my desk. I was like doing seating charts and it, it just goes from beginning, doing the credits, getting all the names together for the credits, getting them approved. And it just really goes from A to Z. There was nothing like the Potter films. There never will be. During the time, I remember thinking, this is so special. It will never happen again. Like, this is such a, a humbling opportunity. Can you tell everyone the story about when you went to Abbey Road? Oh, my gosh. So, yeah. So, that, <laughs> the day we were going to score um, the film, for the, the score for the first film. That's when they put music on the, on the, on the film, right? Right. Yeah. So, we go and we're recording. And John Williams has got, you know, the musicians all there. And. It was so exciting to be at Abbey Road. You know, it was just so amazing. And and I remember sitting there and hearing the bells, you know, at the beginning, but dun, 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 and thinking, oh my God, the only people right now that know what this music is are in this room. But in a few weeks, the whole world is going to know this music. And we all do, right? It, it, but I remember thinking yeah. how special it was to be there and to hear this this music being laid down and it's just like it was so beautiful and it was in this little like abbey road you picture this huge but it's not you know it's a smaller scoring stage and here we were in the basement um and and it was just so 
beautiful, the music coming out. And I, you could just feel how special it was. And it was like knowing that this bottle was going to open and it was going to get released and that everyone was going to have this soon and really relate to it. Definitely. I, I remember us hearing it for the first time because there was all of myself and Luke Youngblood. We were kind of thick as thieves on the first two movies. And I remember we were given like the like, this is what it's, the soundtrack's going to be. I I, that was another thing. It was like, we know, but no one else does, at least outside of here. Like It's, it's like you had this great secret, right? Yeah, it's like when I mentioned it uh, when we were speaking to Ivana, when the first uh, poster came out with the owl carrying Harry's letter. Mm-hmm. And that was all that the world knew of of Potter. But we were like, no, we've been in the Great Hall. We know exactly what it's like. It's, it's like a great <laughs> secret to keep for everybody. I have to tell you another Abbey Road story because like full circle, being at the end of the third film, you know, we're, we're about to, um, we're scoring and it was, I was, I knew I was starting to pack and I knew I was going home now and, um, wasn't going to do the next film. And so, and we had Josh who was now two. And one day, Kurt, I said, you should come with us. I'm going to take Josh because he kept talking about piccolos, piccolos, piccolos. And so I was like, I'm going to take Josh to the Abbey Road so he can go and, and see, see some of the scoring of the, of the film you should come. And Kurt was like, no, I got work to do. I'm not going to go. And so I just took Josh and I walked into Abbey Road and I had just been thinking, you know, I've been here four years and I haven't had any royal sightings or Beatles sightings. And I looked up and Paul McCartney was standing down the hallway and he was like, (laughs) you, and he points to me and he's like, I need to see that baby. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have a baby. He's talking to me. (laughs) So he comes down the hall and he was like all over Josh. He's like stroking his arms and he's like, aren't you so lovely? And Josh kept saying, piccolo, piccolo. Oh, you love piccolos. And he was pretending he was playing a piccolo. I couldn't even talk. I was so starstruck. And I was just staring at him like, oh my God. And so I got down afterwards, you know, I'm thanking him and like, oh, this is amazing. And Josh, you know, he's two. He was just wanting to go see the piccolos. So we go downstairs to the scoring stage and walk in and I was carrying him and I couldn't even breathe. And I was like, I'm never going to wash this baby. Paul McCartney was just stroking my child's arm. It was amazing. Especially there as well. Oh my God. Is that crazy? It's just crazy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you have many a jealous person when you hear... You were at the first Potter scoring and then a beetle came <laughs> at Abbey Road. Unbelievable. Very, I'm, I'm very jealous. I'm not going to lie. Had I not had Josh, <laughs> it never would have happened, you know? There you go. <laughs> so obviously, like you saw us um, grow up through the first few Harry Potter films. Um, but what was what was your childhood like going back to that? What would be a normal day for a young Paula? I love this topic that you're following. I have this magnet on my refrigerator that says the only normal normal people you know are the people you don't know well. And um, I think that's <laughs> yeah. perfect, you know, it's so true. We, like, may, we may have to steal that tagline. I, I, I might have to send that to you actually. <laughs> Please it, do. I think it's found its home. You can share it. Well, that was so, that's such an interesting question because I had anything but a normal childhood. My mom, had me two days after she turned 15 years old. So she married my dad at 14. Um, It was not a normal childhood. She remarried again before she was 18 and had two other kids. So my mom was a very young parent with three little kids. And um, I was quickly a little co-mommy, 
for her. You know, my childhood was really giving a lot of um, caregiving to my siblings. My mom was working two jobs and um, she did an amazing job, you know, for, for what her situation was. But every day for me was different. My sister and brother remember stories of me helping them learn math, helping them with homework, um, doing things around the house. Uh, we had dinners that I kind of threw together in, at a very young age. So um, for me, childhood wasn't really childhood. I think I, I kind of skipped that, you know, um, but I did have this love for escaping, you know, like I, I remember we used to have in the States here, we had the show called Dialing for Dollars. And I used to love to watch it if I could, if I was ever home when it was on and it would have all these old movies. And I remember like just diving into those and having these escapes because for me, that was a way to like be somewhere else from from the childhood. It was definitely not a typical normal childhood. And why I probably love that magnet so much on my refrigerator is because I, everyone else looked so normal to me. Sorry, my dog, Jimmy Hendrix is over here having a little chat. Um, but yeah, for me, everyone else around seemed to have very normal childhoods. And I remember thinking, we don't look like that. That's not our family. Um, and, and a lot of times I think as a child, I had a lot of shame around that. But yeah, you know, I think that those things make you who you are, you know, and as an adult now, I really embrace that. And I think there's nothing to apologize about how you grew up or what your home was like and what your family was like. We had love. We loved each other. We still love each other very much. And I'm really proud of that. And I think that those challenges and that love really helped us all build character and, um, compassion, I think, for others. Am I right in thinking that it was during the your time in England that you were inspired to start your charity? Yeah. Um, so my husband, Kurt, who you know, we came home for Christmas on the first film and Kurt had been pretty sick. He was, he was having trouble. He had gone to the doctor there several times and was having trouble, wasn't feeling good, came home and um, was diagnosed at Christmas with advanced colon cancer. It was two days before Christmas. It was inoperable at the time. And so we were in trouble. And so we went to San Francisco here. Kurt was seen by specialists and ended up having um, experimental surgery and very radical treatment. I'm so grateful to share, you know, thank goodness Kurt is here. And, and we are uh, 19 years past that. But uh, the, we, we were here for quite a while, several months for Kurt to have surgery treatment. So he finished chemotherapy on a Friday and on Saturday we traveled back. And so I came back to work on Monday. I I was pretty rattled still. I was not in my world again. And all of you were so kind and, and so sweet during all of that. You know, we got a lot of messages from all of you and encouragement for us. And so coming back was really emotional. And I remember walking onto the set that day and being kind of nervous about going back to my real life after what we had been through. And literally that day, I went back to my desk and I got a call from a, a wish organization for a child who was dying, who wanted to see the film before she died. And I said, you know, I'm sorry. I don't know why I got this. I don't know why they gave me this call. Um, but what what is it you need? And so I ended up um, working with the director to set up a private screening for her with Chris um, of a rough cut of the film. And she saw the film before she died. She had about two weeks to live. After that, I started asking Warner Brothers and um, the team, like, 
who does these wishes? How can I help? I'd love to help with this. And so they said, you know, nobody's really doing that. So I offered to do that and started a program with Chris. We were able to welcome kids from all over the world, many different organizations for wishes that do that to come to the set. And it became my reason to go to work. I, whenever we were on the stages, I would schedule them. And I had often one or two a week when we were on stage. And it was just so magical. And what was so beautiful to see was how much everyone cared. And here we were in this magical world of Potter, but we had something that we could share with others. And that was just so beautiful. And so many of those kids, uh, more than 65 kids came through when I was there on the next two films for their wishes. And um, they got, they spent the day there. It wasn't just a meet and greet. It was like, come have lunch in the canteen and, you'd be, eat, they would eat where all the kids were eating and they'd just be so crazy excited, you know, to see everybody. And, and, um, Warner's let me have the robes from the first film that everyone had outgrown. You had all outgrown. So I was able to take the kids to the, uh, to the costume department and get them fitted for their robe. And when it was ready, I'd get a page and then we'd go and pick it up and the kids would get to wear it all day and, and wear them and take them home. Yeah. And it was just so amazing. Yeah. And you all spent time with these kids. I, I know you met so many of them. It was just such a, a an amazing experience for the kids and the families coming because they were living in isolation and this gave them a break. But it also, I think it was good exposure for you and for all the other actors. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I, to me, it would, it's definitely one of the highlights of the whole thing because I remember we were on the, the third movie and I was filming the Quidditch and the Quidditch in the third movie was in the rain. So I was on this broomstick high in the air and right before they called action, the uh, costume guy, Laurent, literally threw a cold bucket of water on me. So I'm like, yeah. I'm thinking, oh, this sucks. So then and I then get it's like a massive fan going off, sort of blowing in your face. And it's all going mad. But anyway, I, I get down from there and I start speaking to a, a guest who's come in who's with his dad and they're from the Midwest in the States. And we got on, we started chatting really well and uh, it was really nice to meet them. And then I saw them, I, I saw the dad in at the New York premiere. So about nine months later, and I remember being a bit nervous. Like I could only see the dad. And so obviously your, your mind starts running. And then the the son came over and said, hello. So he was there and that was like the best, it was better than seeing the film or anything like that. That really, and to me, that's what, it's things like that, which people don't see in the private moments that you share with people, but it means so much to them, really, really make the lasting impression. Yeah. And also I remember the, uh, I remember one time a few of the Wish Kids were able to yell action and yell cut, which, which obviously made them, which like none, none, none of the actors knew who this voice was shouting the other side of the wall, say if you're in the Great Hall, because all the monitors were at the other side of the wall in there. But you walk out, you walk back out when you finish filming, and just the buzz on these guys' faces and their parents' faces and their their friends who are with them as well. Because to us, I suppose after a while, it it can be the most fantastic set in the world, like the Great Hall. But when you've seen it more than a thousand times, you're going to get a bit, yeah, we're in the Great Hall today. But then you see what it means to these people to come into it and to think that that's what they've chosen as their wish. That's what they want to do in their, you know, their their time of need. Um, and that we can show them, or we can just lighten their day in any way. I think you should never shy away from doing such things. I, I agree. And I think I remember saying to Warner Brothers, like, if we have the one thing that would help this family, let us do it. Let us share it. You know, and mm. I love that you all were so on board with that. I mean, 
at first everybody was a little scared, like what to say. And, and I think everybody got comfortable pretty quickly, but you know, you guys were all kids too. And it's scary when you don't, when you're first exposed to that, you know, to critical illness and these kids were really sick. Um, and so many of those families I keep in touch with still, and those memories, even if they've tragically lost their kids, those memories are such highlights for them because it was a day when their kids were happy and they were not sick and they were like living their dream, you know, and it was just such a special time. And I, I'm so, I'm just so touched that it was that meaningful for you guys too. Mm. That really means a lot to me. So you move from there onto there with care, um, obviously being at home with your family as well. So can you tell us about there with care, about where they're based um, and what the charity does for families? We helped out with a bit of the, um, in a very, 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 very small way. We helped out with uh, one of the fundraisers this year. So obviously how things have adapted over this, this year just gone with stuff what's happened there. Well, what you did is not small, just so you know, it was big. It helps a lot of families, but I'm really grateful to share with you that coming back from Potter, um, my life had changed. I knew that, you know, my husband had been sick. I had spent a lot of time with a lot of sick families, families with really sick kids. And um, uh, it, it just became clear that I needed to do more. And I didn't want to do wishes that was well covered. But what one family had said to me when he came to the set, I said, you must have so many people helping you. And he said, actually, you know, people don't really know what to say or do. So they don't do anything. And that really stuck with me. And so I talked with Chris um, and Michael Barnathan when we came back. I talked with them about wanting to start an organization that would connect people who want to help with people who need it and to, to bring basic day to day support to families in a medical crisis. So the idea was born from those visits, you know, and getting to know all those families. So I called some of those families. I called four of them and said, what would have helped your family? And all the things. So there with care was born and all the things we do are things that those families shared with me that would have helped their family. So bringing groceries to families, getting them transportation to and from treatments, providing sibling support for the for the siblings who are also their lives are really shattered and, and turned upside down. So being able to do things for these families and give them time to be together and take those stresses off. They also, when a child's sick, one parent has to quit their job to take care of the sick child. So a normal family, normal family with two incomes is suddenly not normal. You know, now you have one income and medical bills and you're trying to have childcare for the other kids so you can get your sick child to treatment their family their their family lives are completely turned upside down so there with care is a quiet support behind these families we started in colorado we're also in northern california and starting in january we'll be in middle tennessee in nashville and we work with the hospital social workers who refer the families they know the families who need our help and my dream is to have them everywhere your guys's help was tremendous because it was an especially hard time since the pandemic hit it, it was a significant impact to the organization community. People weren't in the store buying extra things and dropping them by the office. So we had to go and find them, first of all, which was a challenge. And second, we had to purchase them. So having the resources, um, I can tell you proudly that we never missed a delivery. And we've served more families than we had in previous years. You know, the, the needs increased and people showed up and your help was tremendous. So thank you for being a part of There with Care. And and being a part of starting it, really, you know, 15 years ago, it's a 15-year-old organization, but you guys helped start it 19 years ago on the sets with, <laughs> with that connection, right? 
you know, we always say we're in this together. We're, we're all together and we really are. And this is an opportunity to really just do something nice for someone else and take something off their plate and let them be together as a family. Do you think, do you think that that skill set came from, as you, as you mentioned earlier, obviously your, your mum being a young parent and you were helping out from a young age. Do you think that that kind of has just always been embedded in you, like in terms of, right, okay, what need, what do we need to do? How do we, how can we help? How can we get this? How can we get A to B? Do you think that that goes right the way back all those years gone by? Oh yeah. I had never thought about that, but you're right. It's the survival, right? Um, how are we going to get this? I mean, we were hungry kids at times and there were things to figure out. I definitely think that those things impacted me as um, problem solver, you know, and that's a mm. producer, mm. a problem solver. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a running a nonprofit in a pandemic. It's problem solving. <laughs> Hello, normal, not normal listeners. I just want to say a big thank you to our sponsors, Yamaha, for sending me these headphones. Clearly, they saw the show and have noticed how annoying Oliver's drum is. I, I don't know what they're talking about. So these are Yamaha E700A headphones, and they're headphones that adapt to you and your environment. They look cool. They're designed to produce sound that optimizes and tune to whoever puts the headphones on. They also create a sound that is truer, not louder. So the sound is balanced even at low volumes. And the E700As are aware of competing external noises, so you don't need to crank the volume up when your environment changes. Like when Oliver bangs his drum, for example. Like this, like this. No. See, I can't hear you. Because finally, it creates a sound that cuts noise, not music. So it has active noise cancelling technology, which carefully removes only background noise without processing any of the music signal. So the music is left pure. I've been listening to a lot of heavy metal recently and you can hear every musical instrument and riff going. It is fantastic. And I can bang my drum as much as I like. Yes, you can. Thank you, Yamaha. Guys, if you want to find out more, head to yamahamusiclondon.com forward slash E700A. Yes, that's yamahamusiclondon.com slash E700A. Now, back to the show. Hello, it's that time again. In this brief interlude, we're going to share your questions and some of your did you knows that you have sent in. Right, so let's get off with the first question, which is a voice note from Amparo. Hey guys, my name is Amparo. I'm from Argentina and I just wanted to say that the worst day of my life was when I watched that episode from Game of Thrones, The Red Wedding. So if you watch the show, you know what I'm talking about. And I just want to ask if you guys have like a scene from a movie or a TV show or an entire episode that traumatized you. Like the way the red wedding traumatized me. So James, what scene in a film or TV would you say has traumatized you? Um, I'm going to say the entire film that was Fury. You know the the Brad Pitt film about the tank in the Second World War. Did you ever see that? I did. Yes, it was a. Uh... Actually, when my my pal and I went to see it, when we left, we actually paid for another ticket to go and see the latest Pixar movie, which was being shown at the same time, so we could counterbalance the the joy in our life. It was. <laughs> Right, okay. It was quite a horrific film to watch. It was a great film to watch, but also for what it was portraying, how, how horrible war and all that is, it was a, definitely a, a traumatising event. What would you say? 
Mine would be the scene in It when the little boy is going down the street and he gets dragged into the gutter and he loses his arm. And this massive arm just comes out and drags him back in. Messed up. Right, moving on. Uh, Brooklyn from Canada wrote in and said, Hello. When was the last time you spent Christmas with each other? Also, Brooklyn told us that she's been having a bit of a difficult time with her health in the last two years and is starting to get better. And we're so, so happy to hear that. So you go, Brooklyn. Well done. Well done, Brooklyn. Well done, mate. Fantastic to hear that. So I think the last time we spent Christmas together was Christmas 2019. Is that right? Maybe. It's very memorable. Yeah. Yes, it was. It was because... um, we open presents. Yeah, two years ago. We take, so we take it in turns, don't we? we do, Every yes, other year we, we spend Christmas uh, with each other. So, yeah, it was that long ago. Well, it's quite Very a long good. time since I saw you. It's Things been a been few good. months at least. Yeah. Brilliant. Anyway, anyway, <laughs> moving on because we have got some of your fantastic Did You Knows. And the first one comes from Julia from the Ukraine who says... My future job is a pharmacist, which on a side note, Julia, is a very, very good job. I bet you're very, very good at finding things as well. Because whenever you go to a pharmacist, it's always, yes, here it is. is." Anyway, side note, anyway. Julia says, so the topic of this fact. What? Have you ever noticed how good pharmacists are at finding stuff? Okay. Have you ever noticed that? Like when you go in there, oh yeah, I need to get, you know, this prescription. Oh, okay. And then they look around this massive wall of different packages and stuff like that. And they can find it very, very quickly. Probably because they put things away properly, unlike you. I'm just saying, I'm sure. I'm, hey, hey, hey. Don't anyway, take on, anything back. away from Julia or any other pharmacist about their finding skills. I'm not. I am not. Don't worry. Anyway, anyway, anyway. So Julia says, my future job is a pharmacist. So the topic of this fact is related to medicine. Smiley face. So did you know the brain reacts to social rejection and physical pain in the same way? At the moment of embarrassment, special opioid receptors which are also responsible for the regulation of pain sensations, are activated. (laughs) My mind is blown at that one. That is absolutely amazing, Julia. So is that why you go red when you're embarrassed or or something? Must be, maybe. But do you go red when you stub your toe? With, With anger, yes. Because when you stub your toe, you know the pain is coming. There's like a second or two delay, and then you think, oh, it doesn't hurt that bad. And then wham, it does. Well, when we went away, you know when we went away to Scotland to play golf last year? Yep, when I won, yep. The day before, I was packing some stuff away in my shed and I dropped a spade face down, like down, on my big toe. And I felt that it didn't take a second to reach the pain barrier. For a brief second, I thought I'd chop my toe off. Anyway, same receptors as feeling embarrassed, according to Julia. Thank you so much for sending that in, mate. So Dasher writes in and says, Did you know? that playing electronic dance music, EDM, can ward off mosquitoes. To be fair, I've never been stung or, yeah, I've never had a mosquito bite at a, uh, at a rave or anything like that. Maybe there's something in that. I thought it was something to do with the fluorescent paint, but huh, now you know. I think they're just, they're just like, I bet if you zoomed in on them, they're actually there like with their glow sticks, big fish, little yeah. fish. They've got, all, they've got so many arms as well to do. You could do three or four different dance moves at once if you're a mosquito. I'll tell you what, you know, you know, as we've been talking every now about terrible, crappy merchandise. Yes. We could have a normal, not normal EDM mosquito with like his glow sticks and maybe a drum in one bit there. 
And, you know, I mean, he wouldn't have a Japanese drum. He'd have, like, an electric drum, wouldn't he, to keep the bass Raving going. on. Does that, yeah. does that also go, Is that only mosquitoes, do you think, or does that work for flies and things like that as well? I don't really try and think about flies, because aren't they always been sick? I'm not sure about that one. Anyway, speaking about regurgitation, which, you know... Carefully, you tread into this one, yeah. I know, yeah. Well, yeah, you don't want to tread into regurgitation. Anyway, look, no. this voice note comes from <laughs> Destiny. Hi, Oliver. Hi, James. Did you know that J.K. Rowling came up with the names of the Hogwarts houses whilst going on an airplane with no paper? She wrote them on, a, on the back of an air sickness bag. There you go. I told you it was talking about regurgitation. It was a very good segue at that. That would be... God, can you imagine if you found that on a, on a sick bag afterwards? Really fascinating stuff, isn't it? Very good. So we've got one more, and this jingle is just proof that if you've got a ukulele, you are fantastic. Take it away, Nin, from North Wales. It's normal, not normal with Oliver and James. From Harry Potter, they got their fame. They'll go on some rants and they'll ask you, did you know? So here is the podcast, let's go. That was amazing. I, I, like you say, you can never go wrong with a ukulele. Nin, you knocked out of the park. Thank you so, so much for that. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Well, guys, thank you so much for sending those in. And keep them coming in to our email address, which is normalnotnormalpodcast at gmail.com. That's normalnotnormalpodcast at gmail.com. You can also tweet us using the hashtags normal not normal and hashtag did you know and if you are under 18 please 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 if you're sending us a voice note or jingle or anything like that please get permission from your parent or guardian first well guys i think we've taken up enough of your time jumping in here let's get back to our chat with paula i know a couple of years ago when my wife and i visited you in colorado and we saw your very cozy very nice screening room uh and on the walls, you've got like a, a lot of nice awards and everything for some of the amazing documentaries that you've done. Uh, what was the you know, what, what made you want to go into documentary filmmaking? Just as everything in my life, for some reason, I just was in the right place at the right time. Again, I was wanting to start there with care. And I talked to Chris and Mark and Michael and let them know that I was going to leave my job after 16 years. And I was going to start a, a nonprofit to help families with sick children. And it was a leap. The, the very same day, a friend of mine who's a photographer called me and asked me if I could come over. So I had a good cry when I quit my job, came downstairs, brushed it off and went over to my friend Louis's house, who told me he had just gotten a grant and gotten some funding and was going to start a documentary and he'd never made a film and would I be willing to help and he could pay me. And I said, that's great because I'm starting a nonprofit and I don't have any money to pay myself or to be paid. And so this is, could be good. And can I work around my schedule? Because the charity has to be priority. And um, he said, of course. So <laughs> we, he wanted to do a film to uncover um, the devastation that was happening in the oceans from pollution. And, and um, he just really wanted to bring awareness to the ocean and um, the needs of us paying attention to that. And that project turned out to be The Cove, which, um, which won the Oscar that year um, for Best Documentary, and Louis did a great job with that film. And um, while I was on that film, I met a friend, another photographer who I knew from my kid's school, who someone was doing a film about him. And so I started that while I was still finishing up on The Cove, 
while I was doing there with care. Just like everything else, while I was finishing that, I met another director who was doing his first film about a jazz legend. And it's just like that, you know, it's just like one thing leads to another thing, leads to another thing. And it or very organically happens. So the day I quit working in film, I started documentaries and I've been doing documentaries for 15 years as well as there with care. When you are working on a, on a documentary then, Paula, do you actually think when you start, say like with The Cove, did you have any idea where it was going to lead to at the end? Or was it just a case of this is what they're doing there and we want to expose it? With all of the films, you just don't know what's going to happen. And sometimes it's unfolding. You know, the one I recently did was tragically about a girl who died by suicide, a young girl named Liv at 19. And we we told the story, we started the film after she died, but we also were following the family through this through grief and through their journey. And it just kept changing every month. It, we would get a new video or a new journal entry and we'd be like, wow, this is so not what we thought would be happening right now. You have to be really open. Yeah, so talking about the uh, the film about Liv, so obviously I've been speaking with Tom Felton a bit about it, and he did a couple of weeks ago the Potter virtual reunion, as it were, so talking about 19 years since the film came out, and a lot of that was going towards the Liv project. Is that how it's – is that the right name for it? Um, so can you tell us your involvement with that as well? Yeah, so um, Liv was actually – I knew her since she was three. Her grandmother was the first volunteer at There With Care. And um, Liv died by suicide at 19, tragically. And um, so I've been working with her mom and her sister, and we created a film to bring awareness to prevent youth suicide, to get people to to be less fearful about talking about mm. mental health. I think it, it affects everyone. More than 54% of people who die by suicide did not have a mental health diagnosis. So it could be any of us. It could be anyone we love or care about. And so we really started to put the Live Project together to promote fearless communication around mental health and let people feel safe and not judged to talk about how they're doing. You know, mm. it's a tough time. People are struggling. And the Live Project, which Tom Felton is a part of, is about using creativity to make tools that promote fearless communication. So the first thing we did was the film. And then we started, we, came, we made this game, the game that goes there, which is so cool. It's got all these monsters on it. and But it's really cool because it's all every card in it. So it's like got all these levels of, you know, it's like cards against humanity kind of game. And it gets you to talk like you, you seriously cannot play this game without really talking. It's actually really fun. So there's three levels of cards. I'm not going to go into it too much here, but I just, I am going to ask you guys to pick one. So you guys could choose a color. Uh, I'm going to go yellow. I'll go middle of the road. All right. Here's your card. I'll remember this one conversation for the rest of my life, dot, dot, dot. The one that comes straight to my head is we would be, James and I would have been about six years old or so. And I remember we were in Wolverhampton and we went to the, we went to like some exhibition. And afterwards there was all these crowds gathering outside a police station. And there's like barriers put up and it was a very festive atmosphere. And um, we were just like ushered to the front because mum said, oh, you know, go and see if you can see who, who it's there. I didn't know who they were on about. And this lady got down on like, saw us knelt down and noticed that we had two Thunderbird badges on. And this lady, I remember it clear as day, she said, oh, my, my little boys like Thunderbirds. What's your names? We told them. She said, oh, that's very, well, really, really nice to meet you. And it was so engaging, never breaking eye contact or anything like that. And off she went. And it was Princess Diana. And I will never, ever forget wow. that conversation. Wow. 
Oh, that's a cool story. Okay, that's awesome story. Be that, James. Go on. Yeah, how am I supposed to top <laughs> Princess Diana? <laughs> I will say, just because it's a good story and I love to stick it, a conversation I always remember was my old drama teacher told me, don't do drama at school because you don't have a career in it. Wrong. <laughs> and here we are <laughs> <So> <laughs> and i i have no problem telling anyone do not listen to if just because one person says you you can't do something that doesn't mean anything so true they're really good those ones yeah tom carries some of these cards in his wallet and he when he goes somewhere where he doesn't know a lot of people he pulls them out and starts playing cards with them and he said by the end of the night everyone's hugging and they're like it was so great to meet you and everybody's like because you really i've had people that i know really well say i've never told you this what i just shared with you and it really does get you to be more vulnerable a little bit and to go beyond small yeah. talk mm -hmm. it's fun it's mm -hmm. fun where is the game available from you can get it on our website at theliveproject.com so what would you say is your normal and how does it look like now yeah i'm still not normal at all um every day is different uh and i when i saw uh, when i saw that that was the theme of your series i was thinking yeah i don't have a normal day um i like that i like that it keeps it interesting it keeps me really engaged and um i think being flexible being uh, being open to just going where the path takes you you'll be where you're supposed to be so oliver's asked what does your normal look like so what is the most normal thing about you, Paula? Because there must be something. My normal thing, which probably isn't that normal, and people will say to me sometimes, I don't know how you do that, and I think it's weird, but I love movies. I still am that little kid who can escape, and it's not unusual for me, to, if I can, to unplug, which means watch like five movies on Saturday and five movies on Sunday. Like That is a dream weekend for me. And I can go from yeah. comedy to documentary to environmental to music back to a drama. I mean, I love them. I devour them. And um, that's my boring thing that I love to do. And when I am in that mode, my husband will say, are you just going to stay indoors all day and watch movies? I'm like, yes. And I'm so happy. Like, I can't. <laughs> I'm so excited. Actually, I, I remember I was watching um, recently, actually, Mrs. Doubtfire. Um, I noticed that your name popped up on the nanny's list i had to pause it and rewind it and i was saying to my wife paula's name's on that and she's like what is it as one of the nannies so one of my jobs on that movie was clearances i always had this job on every movie it was legal clearances which means i have to get a release from everybody so um i had been driving the prop people crazy i'm like i need to see this do you have a release for this and so i was just really on everybody and i was very diligent about it. i took my job serious we were doing a screening of the film and i had put given them some cleared names and one of my mm. game was my sister and i had given him laura morris so that she would get crossed off i thought that would be really good for laura and we were at the screening and then i i saw my name get crossed off and i'm like <laughs> what like they did that as a joke they put my name on there so that was a surprise to me and it was so funny because it was so full screen and for a while like i would be making i remember making airplane reservations and talking on the phone to the operator and or the attendant and I gave her my name for my ticket. And she's like, that's the same name that's in Mrs. Doubtfire that gets crossed <laughs> off. I'm like, yes, I'm famous. That's funny. Um, but yeah, there's there's one other little funny thing. Um, after Mrs. Doubtfire, we did um, Bicentennial Man with Chris Columbus with Robin Williams. And 
Chris decided he needed a, um, you know, Chris used to need somebody right away for something sometimes, and they would turn to me. So for example, on Home Alone 2, they needed, um, they wanted like a shadow. There's a scene where Macaulay sets up um, a dancing thing behind the shower curtain. And yep. so I had to get in something and I was like behind a shower curtain doing this thing. <laughs> like they would be like, Paula, we need you. And then um, where there's a scene where um, Daniel Stern, one of the bad guys, he sticks his hand and there's a Santa like ringing a bell and he sticks his hand with tape all over it into the bucket and he takes all the change out of it. And so they, they were doing the inserts and they're like, quick, we need you to go put a Santa suit on. We need you to be the ring beller. And then once I was the pigeon lady, like I was her hand with the pigeon <laughs> costume and I was like reaching to free his foot from the rocks. And so I have a lot of little cameos like that. I was Robin Williams's secretary when he was a robot going to see his lawyer. And I actually had my first speaking line there, which was hilarious because I was so used to being quiet on the set. And like when Chris would yell action, I would just not move. I'd check my page or make sure it was on silent and I wouldn't move. And he needed me to be the secretary to walk Robin in. And I was all ready to go. And then he yelled action and I was just froze. And I just stood there. And then he yelled action again. And I just froze. And then he's like, action. I'm like, and then he's like, Paula. <laughs> I feel like, oh, that's me. <laughs> and Robin, of course, had a good time teasing me that, with that for a while. But mm. yes, I have lots of many little hands and feet cameos, which is funny. <laughs> Would you say that's probably one of the least normal things about you is that you can say you are a random arm or a hand or a foot or a shadow in very, very successful movies? I, I asked my husband, what do you think, and my kids, what do you think is the least normal thing about you? And they nailed it. They, they reminded me of this thing. So I think Chris Columbus named it the cryometer. I think it was him, but um, I have this weird ability when I'm watching it is one of my superpowers. I'm just going to say it. And it's just a weird one. Um, I have this ability to watch something and I get tears or not tears. And I, if it happens, it happens every time in the same place. And if the, if it's not right, it never happens. And so I've had many directors over the years ask me to look at something and then they watch me and I can feel they're <laughs> watching me, but they just want to know if the cryometer's on. But when I was a kid, I, and I still have it and I'm, I am not going to do it for you. I'm just going to tell you, but okay, I'll tell okay. you about it. If, if I, I, this cryometer thing is weird, but I, if I make up a song, tears, just pour, just pour. If I like, I could be singing, I'm sweeping the kitchen floor and it's really dirty. And I can't believe I didn't sweep the floor yet this week. And I would be crying if I'm singing and I'm making up a song. And my sister and brother, when we were little, used to beg me to do it. And when I would do it sometimes, and even my <laughs> kids beg me to do it because they just love to see me blubber. And it happens every time. And I don't know why. I don't know what it is. When my babies were little and I'd be trying to sing, and if I couldn't remember the lyrics to a song, I would just kind of make them up and then tears would just start falling. So I have this cryometer little thing that we aren't sure how to bottle it, but it's it's real. It happens. It's weird. It's weird. <laughs> It's not normal. I was not expecting no, that. I wasn't expecting good... that at all, but it's good, good, good one though. But it's weird and I don't know anyone else that has it. So I'm feeling very, very fortunate that it's that I, I get to have that special power. <laughs> very much so. And then Paula, I've, I've only got my, uh, I call them the 3 a.m. questions, which basically it's quick, quick fire questions and the perfect answer comes at 3 a.m. 
when you're not really thinking about it. But so, what is your favorite book? Well, right now on my bedside is um, Becoming Michelle Obama. What is your favorite food? Mexican food, always. What is your favorite song? I, my, I guess my favorite song is is any song on Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life. And what is your favorite film? Casablanca. And what is your favorite quote? And it can be from a TV or film. I'm going to say this quote wrong, but um, my mother-in-law says it a lot. And, I'm, and, and I, it's Eleanor Roosevelt. And I don't know if I have it right, but um, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission. Isn't that a good quote? Very good. That's Very a perfect good. quote. No, it's definitely a good one. Very good. Well, Paula, thank you so much uh, for joining us and telling us a lot of old stories as well. And obviously your amazing work with There With mm. Care as well. So thank you once again for joining us and yeah, all the best. Mm. Yeah. Thank you very much, Paula. Thank you guys so much. I love your, I love your podcast and, and I love you. And I'm, thank you so much for everything you've done to help me in There With Care too. It's great to see you're adults now, all of, all of the kids from the films, you know, you're all adults now. And I, don't want to use the word kids anymore, but everybody has grown up to be such exceptional people. And, and I definitely count you both in that. You're just such wonderful people. And I'm just so proud to know you. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you. We try, we try not thank to, we try much. to grow up, but it turns out that I think our maturity kind of capped at 16, 17 years old. So we're kind of just like on that wavelength now. It does go a bit silly every now and then, but yeah. You'll always be that in my mind. You'll always be 16. Like, I remember when the first time I saw anybody, any of the kids, like, drink or have a cigarette. I'm like, oh, my God, what are they doing? And I'm like, wait, they're 26. It's okay. <laughs> it's good. It's great to see you. Yeah, thank you so much. You too. Thanks, Paula. really enjoyable really enjoyed chatting with Paula obviously because of her vast knowledge and expertise in the film industry but also what an amazing inspirational person she is with all her charity work definitely uh, like we said earlier Paula was at one of our obviously all the Potter auditions were big but the one of the the last hurdle as it were the screen test which is when you go onto the set and you act the scene out. And Paula was there, so she saw us. She saw us before and then after when we got dyed ginger. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, she was there from from the get-go of the Potters and we've been very, very lucky to stay in contact with her ever since. Yeah, I've actually just ordered my Live Project game. So that, hopefully that'll be here very, very soon and I'll be able to play that. I really enjoyed that and I suppose it's a very thought-provoking game, which I'm looking forward to playing with a lot of my mates as well, maybe over a over a glass of wine or just whatever but just having a good little um yes. you can see the difference you're on about me with a glass of wine. i'm talking about me and my mates with a few beers and just oh i'm sorry oh yeah 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 lads 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 yeah 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 we got about a few beers what does it, it doesn't make a difference what it is you're going to be sitting there drinking whatever could be pepsi could be coca-cola could be water for all i care i'm not judging anyone on what you want to drink hey you want to order a martini you order a martini you want to have a lemonade have a lemonade it doesn't matter unless you're like james who just sits there Way, lads yeah the way i look into it is that whenever you order a wine you do the the thing the wine thing where the guy comes over is this okay make sure it doesn't taste like vinegar it's not hard i'm not gonna know what it tastes like but it's how you always do these. Luckily, I do. There's three three things that Oliver will do. He'll swill, he'll sniff, have a little sip, and then yeah, the, yeah, the final only, four thing he does is go. He'll go. Mm, yeah. Yeah, but what if it didn't? You could. You, you would know if you had a court wine. I'm trying to get you onto a rant today. 
Okay, you want me to go on a rant? I'll go no, on a rant. Had, you had your rant. No, no, you've had your rant. That's got, it. Okay. Save it for another show. We've already had one already. Put a cork in it. Hey. Anyway, I have a couple of did you knows. Oh, right. Okay. Did you know that a woodpecker can peck 20 times in one second? No. There you go. They're the woodpeckers, right? Woodpeckers are the bird equivalent to that ass who turns up at a beach with a stereo, with like his own stereo system. So you've got to listen to his music. One more thing. Did you know that dirty snow melts quicker than clean snow? No. I suppose is that because the uh, it's already been warmed up slightly because of the dirt? What's... I just provide the facts. I don't explain them. That is this week's Did You Know? So this week we've had great insight from Paula into working behind the camera in the office, basically being the go-to person, learning how to start an amazing charity and all the hard work she does. So please check out the There With Care website. And also the Live Project as well. Guys, thank you so much for checking out our podcast. We'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye. Normal Not Normal is a stable production.